Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 249, and today's guest is Shenzi Deng, co-founder of Merge. One of the common mistakes that entrepreneurs make is failing to discover the true market need for an idea by talking to potential customers. Entrepreneurs sometimes fall in love with their idea and go off to build it, only to find out it's not a pain point that customers are willing to pay money to ultimately solve. This was definitely not the case for Shenzi and Gil Feig, the co-founders of Merge. While they were still employed, they spent six to nine months talking to at least 100 different companies to validate the problem, their potential solution, and of course the long-term opportunity in terms of the addressable market. At that point, the due diligence was done and it was time to leave their jobs and go all in on building a company. Merge is revolutionizing the way B2B companies integrate with their unified API for payroll, HR, recruiting, and accounting. The company announced a $15 million Series A round of funding towards the end of last year, which was led by addition with participation from existing investor NEA. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on raising funding for first-time founders, Shenzi's initial experience in investment banking and technology investing, plus her role as chief of staff at a startup and what this experience taught her about running a company, the aha moment that led Shenzi and Gil to work on Merge and how they got started, all the details on Merge today, the platform, use cases, funding, and growth plans ahead, what positions were the most challenging to hire for in the early days of the company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, this week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month, that's free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0 at checkout. Go to Market news.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Shenzi. Shenzi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Likewise, I am really excited because I think what you're building, you and your co-founder and team at Merge is building something that's very relevant in my my space and you know, you're working with lots of different HR ATS. I mean, the whole HR world is uh, one that's definitely evolving. You guys are at the epicenter of hopefully bringing it all together through your platform. But before we get into that, let's talk about something that's really important for founders, especially if you're a first-time founder, that's raising capital. It's a challenge. It's something that people are constantly trying to figure out what's the best way to approach it. And if you're a first-time founder, it's even more difficult. So what advice would you give to uh, you know entrepreneurs that are out there trying to raise capital for the first time? Yeah. So one thing that Gil, Gil, my co-founder and I didn't really expect up on raising the first time was that it's a lot more about your story and them wanting to see how you are able to recruit talent and also compel early customers to taking a chance on your product. And so it's really about seeing like how you talk about the product, what direction it's going to go in and how you can persuade any person that you're communicating with into buying this vision. Um, and so that was something that Gil and I didn't really expect. We actually spent a lot of time building the product actually so that we could demo it to any potential investor and they could really see what the long-term vision would look like. But I think what was really, really compelling was being able to say, this is where it could go over time. This is what our this is what our vision is for merge five, 10 years out. We really want to build a foundational company. So I think that was something that we were we were surprised about, but 
um, we were able to learn a lot from that experience. And it also definitely helped us a lot with recruiting and also selling to customers, just having that practice from fundraising for the series, uh, for the series seed. That That's great advice because I do hear that all the time. It's like, it's the story, right? It's like, why this founding team? Why now? Like, what, like, like what's their passion conviction to build this company? That's hopefully going to be something that's going to be, you know, a massive swing for their investment capital. So, uh, so how did you go about crafting? Once you figured that out, like when did you decide was the right time to raise capital? And, and then how did you craft that story? Yeah, I think it was the point where Gil and I were building it. And we were just like, okay, at this point, there's so much work to do. We obviously need to hire more team members because we could just multiply our efforts and start moving really, really quickly. We also knew where we wanted to go long-term was going to have a lot of competition because we really felt that this was a really great idea. And so we had to move really, really quickly. Software doesn't really have moats except for how many hours you can put in and how smart you can work to do. But your competitors are also working really smart. You definitely have to put the hours in and it helps to multiply those hours by hiring more team members. All right, let's rewind the clock. So um, talk about your background. Like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so I um, actually was born in China. Um, I'm half Korean, half Chinese, but I was born there since my mom is ethnically um, Korean, but grew up in China. And I was there for like one year. And then we moved to Canada. My dad was getting his PhD there. And then we moved to America. So I spent most of my childhood and um, formative years in America outside Boston in the suburbs. Oh, very cool. Okay. And then what led you to Columbia? Why did you just study, decide to study computer science and minor in economics there? So I grew up in a pretty small town outside of Boston um, and it was 10,000 people. My high school was around like, you know, it was around like 200 people per class. It was a really, really small town. Um, and I think seeing all the different college towns in the Northeast that I was visiting, it felt a lot like just staying where I was currently and going to the same high school and having that same exact experience again. And I think when I first went to New York, I was like, oh my gosh, wow. Like this really is what like the world is like. And I think also stepping on campus, it was just like the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. And also it was in the city and I felt like it was really going to fast track me and what kind of experiences I would be able to have. And I think one, this is, I feel like I'm like selling club you right now, but one <laughs> thing that really stood out to me was at the engineering um, orientation, when they were trying to talk to you about like what was really different about the engineering school, they really valued um, making sure engineers had a liberal arts education as well. So there was a core curriculum that was really important in the college, but engineers had to read um, literature, they had to learn art history, and they also really have to learn how to write because engineers can, you know, you can just focus on coding, but it doesn't really matter if you aren't able to convey those ideas to different people. Um, and so it was just really ingrained in us, like at that school, like you had to learn how to write, you had to learn how to communicate, and you had to also be really well read. Um, and I just thought that to be really, really unique compared to other schools that I looked at. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's so important because it is good to have that computer science engineering background, but to have that well-roundedness, especially if you're going to start a company, I mean, you need to have not just the technical chops, but you got to have that ability to, you know, write, communicate, create a vision. So outside of the engineering components, it's, uh, I think that's amazing that Columbia does that. So how'd you get started with your career? Yeah, so I really loved coding. I've been coding since I was 12. Uh, I actually always wanted to, I, th I thought I was going to be an engineer, especially after school, and I went to college with that goal in mind. Uh, but I think one thing that was interesting about being in New York was I saw a lot about like different companies, companies within campus, and also they really encouraged us to think about like, you know, econ and like different, you know, how to evaluate uh, 
like how the markets were going. And I just had no idea. I would just think of these ideas. I was like, is this even a good idea? Like, I don't have no, I don't know. Like, what is the financial statement? Like, I don't know how to read this. And it seemed like it was a really big gap in knowledge that I definitely didn't have. And I felt like it, it hurt me that I wasn't able to understand like how to evaluate different companies when just looking at them or I'm, you know, reading what I don't know, like hearing like investor reports, like I didn't know anything about it. So I decided to actually go into finance after getting my computer science degree. Um, and it was really hard because everyone was like, you study computer science. Like, why are you looking for like an investment banking job? Um, and I tried so hard to get that job. Uh, and I really had to sell them. Like, I know I studied computer science, not econ, but I really think that I'm going to be able to learn this and because I can code, I can be really good at Excel. Um, and so I did investment banking so that I could really fill in that gap in my knowledge. I um, did that for two years and I, I really learned about work ethic and also attention to detail. And it was a really, really valuable experience for me. Um, but I wanted to get back to my roots. I was covering industrial companies, which were cool, but it really helped me learn like the bread and butter of M&A and like financials, but it definitely wasn't something I wanted to stay in. So I um, started looking for investing roles, um, found an opportunity at Silver Lake's growth equity firm, and then moved out to San Francisco to uh, join that team. And it, it was really awesome, loved it, but I uh, wanted to get back like to operating and I wanted to know what it was like to work in a company. So that's how I found my way at Expanse as chief of staff and CEO. So the, at Silver Lake, was that more of a tech-oriented type of deal flow? Then, okay. So what did that experience teach you in terms of, you know, starting to get your hooks into the tech industry and what, you know, Silver Lake taught you? It made me learn about what investors care about and don't care about. And also it made me realize like how, yeah, like what, how much time they have to really look at certain companies very, very deeply without starting conversations with them. And I think it really helped me think through when we ended up fundraising, um, what information we definitely had to convey, how much we had to repeat things, and also how little knowledge most investors probably had in the space. So we really had to also educate them on what the landscape looked like and how we were different. And that was going to be something that was really going to be important every single time we met with an investor. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking as I was, you know, reviewing your background and preparing for this podcast that that experience must've given you a leg up when it came time to raise capital, just knowing, you know, a lot more about that space than maybe most entrepreneurs. Okay. So you talked about your next role was at Expanse. So what was Expanse? And then your role as chief of staff. So that is a title that I've been seeing more and more often, and it seems like a really interesting job, but I don't know if everyone knows about it. So let's talk about what Expanse does and then talk about the role of chief of staff. Yeah, of course. So Expanse was a cybersecurity company. Um, so we not only sold to like the government, but we also sold to five, Fortune 500 companies. Um, it was a really, really, really cool experience because I had never had any experience to um, like the government, learning what that sales motion looked like. I'm also learning how, yeah, I guess also like how to communicate in that way, all the different cultural nuances there. And, and we had so many like veterans that are at the company. It was just such a formative experience for me to be learning about like the CIA, like, you know, all these different like three letter agencies. I had no, I had no idea how they operated. And also, um, yeah, just also how security conscious like our team was because of that. So it was just a very, very interesting experience. Um, and I also got to work, as mentioned, as chief of staff, I got to work directly with the CEO. Um, and it was so, so incredible. So one thing that really struck me when I was at Silver Lake was meeting all the different founders and um, and seeing like how passionate they were about space and also how they were just experts at everything that was related to that area. Um, and Tim 
absolutely was. He was not only an expert at cybersecurity and like everything related to it, but because cybersecurity is such a broad topic, he knew so much about politics, like technology and security and like, you know, um, like government relations. And it was just such a, such an interesting combination of things where he really knew everything. And he's so, so well-read that it made him really, really persuasive. And there were certain situations where he'd be going through a really, really tough time and like the company would be going through a tough time, but he like, or just, you know, there was a decision that had to be made and he would always get it out of it and he would always get the company out of it. And he was just so, yeah, he was just so charismatic and he was able to like persevere through any difficult situations that it it taught me a lot about how it's really, really hard. And he, and he was able to, you know, make it a success. So it was just really, really interesting to have such a close, uh, have such close access to that. Yeah, I would think the, you know, what you were exposed to was a big part of that learning experience. But like, what what does that job entail? Like, is it just like shadowing the CEO and just doing special projects? Like, what like what is the role of chief of staff? Yeah, so it's kind of like anything that the CEO doesn't really have time to do. Um, so it's a combination of like helping him with like executive team management for like the executive things. Like how do we run those meetings? What information needs to get surfaced to him? Um, also, if there were like any things that he needed to get briefed up on quickly at the company, I was in charge of trying to gather that information and making sure that he was able to get um, know what he needed to know immediately. I also needed to bubble up things that might have been problems around the company. So I always had to keep like a pulse check on all of those things. I was also in charge of communication too. So I ran the weekly all hands. So really making sure like what's important across all the departments, um, how do I get this information conveyed? How do I think thoughtfully about what is essential communication too? Because as a company gets bigger, weekly all hands get very, very expensive. It's an hour every week of every single team member's time. And so what is it needs, what is need to know? And also how do we use that time in a way that it like improves company morale and also direction. So um, it was it was just so many different things that I can't I don't even know like how I can compress all of it. But it was also like how do I prep him for these meetings? How do I make sure that everything is ready for him? How do I optimize the chances of company success by making sure like there's a demo in place that he knows this important information that he knows like these nuances about like what might be happening. Um, also like he wants this project happening. Like, how do I get this up and running so that I can over time hand it off to another team? Um, so it was, it was just a lot of different projects, but it was a really great experience. It sounds like a great position. And this is what I was assuming, but it's great to hear firsthand from you that this is a great position for someone to take on. If they're serious about becoming a founder of a company, it's like, it's like almost like a breeding ground of experience to put you in a position to know the ins and outs of what a founder goes through and the better, you're never going to be fully prepared to take on that role until you actually do it. But it is kind of that early learning experience to help better prepare you for it. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was really great. And I also, I, I worked when he worked and so I got to see that too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So let's talk about your current company merge. So how did you meet your co-founder and what led you down the path of starting a company like was that something that you always wanted to do no so I actually really wasn't I always really thought that every single time I made a new move I was like oh maybe this is like a career path I'm going to go on and I think we just ended up getting to this direction um but Gil and I actually met freshman year of college both like computer science we were like all the same classes group projects social group and Gil was such an amazing software engineer he was 
always super, super smart. And he was always pumping out apps like left and right. And some of them were just like wild and weird and crazy, but he was just, he was just very prolific with how quickly he was able to code and what the quality of his code as well. Um, he actually made the Columbia dining app and then he sold it to the school. Uh, so we've always known each other for a while and he, he's just such a great person. And we kept in touch after school since we were, we were best friends. Um, actually senior year, we were also an engineering student council, class president and vice president. Uh, oh, wow. Time, we thought it was, yeah. <laughs> I know, so you had I experience we working together too, kind of, right? We like so you knew as coming together to start a company, you already knew the working styles of each. Yeah, we did. And um, he was always the person that when he said he would do something, he would always do it. And that's that like, you would feel like that's like baseline, but it meant, it's, it meant a lot. Like he always would do everything that he would, he said he would do, even though there was school, you know, people were partying. There was like, you know, there was like so many distractions that like he always would do what he said he would do. Um, and I, I just really valued that. And uh, yeah, so it was just really great. And we also actually kind of knew what it was like to work, work together too. He's really, really great at communication, and especially since we worked so closely together. Um, I just knew that we would be able to work really well together. And, and honestly, it wasn't really great practice for, for when we ended up getting started. Um, and after school, we obviously kept in touch. I was in New York though for a few years, so uh, but we kept in touch during that time period. And when I moved to San Francisco, um, we would hang out all the time. Uh, I just moved to a new city. And so I didn't have like, a ton, I didn't have a ton of friends there yet. And he really, really like introduced me to everyone that he knew. Um, and we would talk about work all the time. And a couple of years later, we both were at two different companies that are in very, very different spaces. Expansives and cybersecurity, very different from Jill's company, which was in recruiting. But during our weekly dinners, uh, we would obviously talk about like, what is stressful at work right now? Like, what is going on? Like, what are your thoughts on this? And I just remember there was one dinner where at Sweet Green, where Gil just looked so horrible. And I was like, what's going on? Um, he was telling me about like these integrations that he was building and how horrible it was. And he was just like in a room locked up all day, just focusing on this. And it was just really interesting because we were running the same exact problem same time and so that really started getting our wheels turning and we really were like okay maybe maybe there might be something here okay so how did you get to that next phase okay so th there's this you know discussion of man this is a horrible what i'm doing as far as the integrations how did you get to the point where like wait maybe there's a company to be built around this idea yeah so I just started hammering everyone I knew to try to learn more about integrations. I started reaching out to people like customer, like customer success teams. I wanted to learn more from like different engineers. I wanted to talk to PMs. I talked to people in my company also. So I reached out to the integrations team to learn more about it as well. I really want to know like, why is this so hard? Why is everyone complaining about this? What is like, what is the total time and all, who are all the people that are impacted by this? And we did around six to, I think like six, nine months of research talking to a hundred different companies. Because I just wanted to collect this information. Like what, what is the true problem here? And how many different personas can we potentially sell to if we are able to solve this problem? Um, and uh, yeah, and then we realized like, Fundamentally, the problem is very, very similar, even across multiple categories. So if we can solve this to address this for all B2B software, then we can really solve this for, it's going to be a big problem we're solving long-term. Yeah. Well, I think that's a key part that entrepreneurs need to recognize. It's not like you are like met at Sweet Greens. The next day you're like, okay, let's just build a company. No, you spent six to nine months evaluating the space, the market, the use cases, the market potential. So you did your upfront due diligence to make sure that, okay, if we're going to build this, let's just not build something and realize, oh, no one cares. So, and <laughs> right. So uh, that upfront discovery is so key that I think some entrepreneurs do miss that part where they're like just in love with their own idea before they realize 
companies might not pay for it because they don't really have that critical need. So, all right. So how did you get started once you were like, okay, we're going to build this, uh, you know, was it just you and Gil just writing code and integrations? And when did you start to, to hire? Like, how did you get the company started? Yeah. So, I mean, Gil and I also had really great jobs. So to your point, like we had, we had jobs that we really liked. We felt like we were moving up really quickly and um, it would be hard to leave those roles if we didn't feel like there was a lot of conviction that we were solving a problem. And we also had to make sure that the solution that we came up with was actually going to be a 10x solution compared to what is out on the market. The first few ideas we came up with were honestly really horrible um, and they weren't 10x solutions. They were all like, you know, 1.1 or maybe even like 0.8x <laughs> Um, and so, yeah. And so we were like, okay, we really need to figure this out. So uh, yeah, I, I their I research was super, super important for us that we were able to justify leaving. And when we ended up fundraising, it was also a more compelling story because we had all these anecdotes and data points that we could point to. Um, but getting started, we had to quit. I, I felt like we couldn't really start a company without making sure like we were fully in there and that we didn't have any way to like be like, oh, actually I'm going to stay at this company. Like I'm not really going to be fully invested. We really had to make sure like we are fully in this. This is all we're going to be focusing on and this is a full-time job. So I um, had to get that step done too. And I know um, I know that a lot of people are like, oh, I'm working on your side hustle, but I just felt like if we're going to be all in, like we really need to focus on this. So that was the first step, quitting, got started. <laughs> and then we started doing research. I'm like, okay, what's going to be our first category? And then when we decided that this TAM analysis, we were like, okay, how do we start evaluating what our API looks like? And then we had to just build. There's really nothing to do in the early days, but build. And that was something I actually didn't really expect. I thought maybe there'd be like some like, you know, company formation, legal and like financial things. But I got all of that done before, uh, like very quickly. And then the only thing to do is just code. Um, and I hadn't coded for five years. So Gil, and this is only something that you can get from someone who's been your best friend for a long time, but Gil sat next to me and like refreshed my memory of how to code for three weeks so that I could contribute to the company as a stock, like as a full stack software engineer, because I just knew like, if we really want to propel this company forward, I have to contribute. I can't just sit there being like, oh, Gil, like, I think you should be doing this. Like, like, here's like my horrible design. I think you should do it. It really needed to be like, okay, I'm going to help move this company forward. So I, I got back and I was like, okay, I'm going to be a full stack software engineer. So we were just coding and coding all day, all night, weekends. Uh, we were like, we, this is the time frame we're going to give ourselves to get a, a prototype out there so that we can be prepared for fundraising. Allocated the time, did it, started talking to investors, Close the fundraising round, and then we were like, "Okay, now the only thing we need to focus on is hiring our early team members." And was it? Did you raise capital before your announced seed round, or was that what you were you're talking about? Yeah. So you raised some. Yeah. A small round. It was like a year. Yeah. We we actually didn't announce it for a year because we felt like if we were going to announce it, we really wanted to use it for an advantage to the point where our product needs to be ready. We wanted it to be self serve. We wanted people to be able to really actively use it, um, and that we would be able to account, you know, account for that. So uh, that volume, and it was totally worth it because by the time we did come out to the market, our product was really battle tested, and we were really, really proud of the quality. And which segment did you decide to focus on first? Because you know the world of HR tech is, you know, very large. So which segment did you cater towards first? So we actually decided to do two categories at the same time. And the reason why we wanted to do that was because we wanted to make sure that we started from the get-go being a cross-category product. We didn't want to just start one and get really siloed on it and stuck on it. We wanted to be able to start proving out like, okay, over time, we are going to be able to keep expanding and also build our product from the start to be cross-category. Uh, and also one thing that we really thought about was 
how we could choose two categories that were a little bit different so that we could invest in longer term, um, in, like invest in longer term features for our product that might not be relevant for the first one. So HRS just doesn't have as much data as ATS. A single ATS can have, if we're a mid-sized company, can have millions and millions of candidates. And that amount of volume um, is just so, so much more significant than HRS. And it forced us to invest in scalability upfront. Like we had to do optimizations. We had to make sure like we were, our databases were able to handle that load. We also had to make sure like we were adding, you know, we were accounting for certain things to the custom fields and um, all these different endpoints and receiving web plugs, like all these different things that we knew were going to be huge problems for ATS. Yes, we were forced to also address for HRIS and it made our HRIS product a lot better. And there were certain things also for HRIS that we knew were going to be um, like problems that weren't quite relevant for ATS. But then once we started signing on customers, of course, those customers also wanted to access those features. So I think all these different things like happen for a reason. As we approach two categories at the same time that are very different, it forced us to make sure the product overall was much higher quality. We also wanted to make sure that we had the pressure of two different categories to support upfront too, and just have a culture of making sure everything was going to be good instead of just focusing on one and having like, you know, a lost child that no one was really uh, addressing. So those are the two categories we started off with. And then um, and then like end of last year, we started, we launched a third category and we're about to launch a fourth one as well. Oh, cool. Very exciting. So at what point did you go to market and start to say, okay, world, we're here and then have, you know, customers start to purchase. And you mentioned, Hey, we want to be the self-service or so product-led growth. Like, so how did you start to build awareness and, and get customers onto your platform? Yeah, so we came out of self in mid-April. Um, so we were in self for quite a long time, just focusing on the quality of the product building. Um, and we knew upfront we wanted to have self-serve be live so that we could really, really battle test our products. Self, all the best API companies are self-serve. So, you know, Stripe, um, Plaid, like SendGrid, like all these portfolio, all these companies you sign up, get started putting your product card, you don't have to talk to anyone. And it is such a high quality product. You never have to talk to anyone. You could just do it whatever, you're paying full price, continue to scale with them. Um, and I, I, we were like, okay, we need to get started with this. It's, it's going to be really, really painful. We're going to have a ton of like post-sales, hopefully, uh, because companies are going to sign on. Um, and then it will force us to make sure that everything in our onboarding flow is so clear that we don't have to get a human involved. And it, it was really, really crazy over the summer. Oh, I think over the summer, we only had like eight people and we had like 400 companies sign up for the product and it was insane no way 400 companies over the summer yeah well now we're much more but over we were like i know dying. but i'm just taking this i'm just taking this from a lens of you know your early days of you just must have been like product market fit yes <laughs> that's just amazing we kept being like oh my gosh we are so blessed but we were like we were really dying and i think yeah, yeah. And we, the way we felt also is it was like going on Accutane. I felt like we were just like getting all the bugs out like really, really quickly because it was such a high volume of usage that we just had to like address them really quickly. And then once the bugs were gone, they were completely gone. And then after that, we were, once we were able to just like, <laughs> once we could fix all of them, it really made our product so much better. That is phenomenal. So, okay. So then you went on, you announced uh, your series A, $15 million last November. Um, so where's the company now, as far as, you know, number of employees, whatever you can share. Yeah. So now we're around, um, 34 employees. 
place um, in San Francisco, New York City. Uh, we started off in San Francisco in Gil's apartment, but now we're bi-coastal. Um, one thing that we didn't really expect was um, how many European customers would be really interested in the product and also how remote work has also caused a lot of companies to just hire people everywhere. Uh, so we ended up having a lot of sales calls in Europe when we were all based in California. And it was really, really tough to be able to support all those different customers too in a really quick way. Um, so I moved up to New York in May with one of our team members, started growing out that team. And now our New York team's a lot larger. Uh, but yeah, it's been really, really exciting. We have over like over 1,100 companies also on the platform right now, uh, including some really large ones that we're very, very excited about. So it's been a really great journey. So, so I think it would be helpful for people just to kind of digest what you guys do, uh, like a, a customer example that you can share in, in their use case. So Ramp is a corporate credit card company, and they also have um, a bunch of other features like expense management, billing. Um, but one thing that they wanted was increased adoption of their product throughout a company. So every single time an employee is hired, give them a Ramp credit card so that all their expenses are all processed through Ramp. And there's no other alternative because their product is free. Uh, the last time I uh, we use them. So last time we check, it's free, but they make a, they make a fee on all of the expenses that are processed through the credit card. So they really want these credit cards to have wide adoption. And so we started conversations with them and um, it's been really exciting to see how they've been thinking about the different use cases with our API. And so right now they have HRIS, HRIS integrations live on their product. So you can just add in um, an API key for any HR provider that you may be using. And then automatically every single employee will be synced. Someone's terminated, disabling their account as well. Um, you can also, you know, get like org chart information on like their manager and team also pulled through the HRIS platform too. So um, it's been really exciting seeing their traction, how quickly they've been growing um, and also wider adoption of this, these integrations in the expense management space as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's great when there's a product or platform like you've built, like you mentioned Stripe as an example and like they weren't first to market on doing credit card transactions online. It was shocking how difficult it was before they existed, though, which I, it still blows my mind. Like very simple transactions on VentureFizz of posting a job. I used to use PayPal and it was a complete nightmare because there would be so <laughs> many credit cards that were declined that were totally fine credit cards. It's just like the person mistyped in the address, whatever they did, like they would deny American Express all the time. It was a mess. As soon as we went to Stripe, the world was a much better place. It was simple. <laughs> it worked. We got paid. It was like, this is amazing. So when you talked about the experience of building a platform with the right, you know, um, you know, uh, you worked out all the bugs and it, it just works, right? And I'm sure Ramp is like, this is beautiful. It just works. And that's what you want out of a platform company. And yeah, you know, I could see why your investors were so excited because this is something that can scale when you look at what Stripe and what they've done in scale and many other companies that have built these platforms. So uh, it's really exciting to see what, what the road ahead is, is, is going to hold for you guys. Now, I imagine you must be growing the team. So what's, what's the hiring plan as far as the different functional areas that you're hiring for? Yes. Um, so obviously we're always hiring more software engineers. Um, we are always actually looking for engineers based in San Francisco, New York City. Um, we are also looking for software engineers that also may want to be customer facing or do some scoping of new categories. Um, so we have a platform team that isn't just software engineers. They do a lot of other things like they actually do sales enablement, obviously working on integrations, um, looking at scoping out different APIs, um, writing documentation for it. So it's a little bit more of a hybrid technical generalist role. We are also always hiring for that too. Uh, we are also looking for um, a head of talent right now too. So uh, we are going to be starting the search for that soon. 
that is a great, great opportunity for somebody. All right. So you're been scaling a company, you've been building a platform, been raising capital. So you've done a lot in a short amount of time. So what have been like the biggest lessons learned around building a company? Yeah, there's no substitute for hard work. Um, I know that's, I know that's, I think controversial, but with, it's just, there's, there's no votes on software. It really just has to be like, how much work do you, especially in the beginning, it's just how much work can you put in? How thoughtful are you about your product? Um, and in the beginning, especially in like the first year, Gil and I were working like every weekend, super, super late. Our whole team was, it was, it was a grind, but it was so worth it. So we could create something that we were really proud of and able to move really quickly. Well, here's where I stand on this. Cause it, people like, are like, hustle culture, right? Oh, there's so much negativity of like, you know, working so hard. I'm like, if you're viewing it as hustle culture, then you're probably not in the right spot. It should be something that you enjoy doing, that you're passionate about, that you're seeing growth and benefits. Like the amount of time I've spent on venture fizz is an extraordinary amount of time. In addition to, it was a side hustle for a long time for me, but I've loved it and I wouldn't change it for the world. And, you know, I balance my time. I have a family. I see all my kids sports and I, and I have flexibility, but that means there's things that I don't necessarily want to do myself personally that goes to the side. And I'm cool with that. So I don't view it as like this hustle culture and this whole stigma. I'm like, no, if you're an entrepreneurship, you should be excited about what you're building and put the time in to hopefully see a greater build of what you're trying to put your blood, sweat and tears into. So. I, yeah, I totally agree. It's also a really magical bonding experience too. It's such a unique time like in the early parts of a company where everyone is just so in it and everyone is a part of a team. There's no one that doesn't care. Everyone is really great. And you know that every hour that you put in has a material impact on the success of the company long-term. Um, obviously it's not always going to stay like that, but it is a really magical part of a company's journey. And I, especially with like the early team members, we got so close through all that time. And it's so, it, it, it was only like a year ago, but um, it's so interesting to always talk about like those times because also our week work was not as, it was like really dark and it was like dark at like 3 p.m. like the holidays and it was like COVID. So it, it was definitely like a dark period, but now we're out, you know, we're out of it. <laughs> we're out of it now. We have a bigger we work. We have, you know, windows and stuff. So yeah, things have changed. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, you know, as you've been hiring, has there been a particular position that has been like the most challenging to hire for? Yeah. Um, God bless our first our designer because the design, the first designer is so hard to hire. Uh, there aren't that many at every single company. And when you find one, you really have to vibe with them. And also they have to be down for the early stage ride. And design is such a critical part of the company because it's the first impression of what everyone has when they look at your product. And a really great design can hide a lot of things, like things in your product that you may not want to be obvious. And our designer is so amazing. He is not only like, he was also actually a former banker, but he's also a software engineer. Uh, and then so he, whenever he designs, he's so thoughtful about like what the developer experience is like and also what how our engineers may approach it as they're building it. Um, but yeah, that was a really, really hard hire. I think I talked to like 150 designers before we found him. 150, wow. Yeah, it was really hard. We're, we're a big recruiting culture uh, here. So Gil and I sourced a lot of team members and we were really, we're very actively involved in recruiting, but yeah, it was a, it was a tough hire. And then same with the first marketing hire too, uh, because it has to be someone who's really down to just experiment with a lot of different things. Um, marketing is also getting more technical, so they might need to have some sort of knowledge there already as well. Um, 
yeah, it's hard. Those were the hard, but those are two hardest. <laughs> like when I was recruiting, product management and marketing was my specialty. But anytime someone would ask me about, hey, do you do designers too? I'd be like, no, for that reason, because it's really, it was, there's not a lot of designers. And then it's just one of these jobs that, you know, because it is uh, an art, it's visual, it's, you know, it's just, there's a lot to great design that people don't know and the process. It was a very challenging role to find the talent and then obviously to, uh, you know, get the two parties to agree that this was a good fit. So I, uh, I stayed in my lane of product management and marketing back in the day, but anyways, <laughs> uh, all right. So outside of work, like what, or I guess this could be work-related still, but uh, three apps you can't live without. Yeah. So I saw this and I was like, I was thinking about what they would be. And I feel like my answers are extremely lame. So because all of them are like enterprise, enterprise apps, I was like, oh, like Slack, Gong. Um, and I was like, wow, this is going to make me sound like a total loser. But yeah, I, I love Gong. It is such an amazing, perfect product. It is the best product ever. Um, I used to think like, wow, salespeople are like really obsessed with this company. But now that I'm using it, I'm like, oh my gosh, it is a perfect product. And then obviously Slack, we really love Slack. And then um, this might be kind of beta, but Google Maps. Um, I think Google Maps <laughs> are really, is an incredible app, but I don't know how I'd live in our city without it. Yeah, good. I, I agree. So like, I, you know what? I might have to someday go through the archives of this podcast because... <laughs> I'm usually interviewing founders and usually I get similar responses because it's usually not something off the beam as like Slack, um, email, Twitter. I don't know. Like, it's just very like down the lane, useful functional tools for building a company type of stuff. It's not like, you know, I spend hours on Instagram and I love it or something. Um, so, all right. Well, what about like podcast book recommendation that you would have for other entrepreneurs? Yeah, so I, I listen to pretty much like all of the Silicon Valley podcasts. Um, every time I work out, I'm like, I'm in the shower. I always just listen to podcasts. I'm pretty prolific with podcasts. Um, but a book that I read um, last year and I reread it actually recently, it's Commonwealth by Ann Patchett. Uh, it's a fiction book about family and some of the excerpts were just so beautiful. And it's not relevant to my job or tech at all, but it, it was one of those fiction books that really made me think and like feel sad and also feel happy and like, oh, like, this must be really awkward. Um, it's weird to read a fiction book that makes you feel so many different emotions um, that make that are like, oh wow, maybe someone else also feels this would feel weird in this situation as well. Uh, so yeah, I just found it a really beautiful book, and I've been reading all of the books recently. So Commonwealth was the name. Yeah. What's it about? It's about a family um, where one the one mother marries the father of another family and they divorce their significant others and start a new family and they move across the country. And it's about one of the children uh, in that, in, like that was the daughter of the mother and what that experience was like um, and how it impacted their family, how it impacted their their you know their childhood, um, also how it impacted their dynamic with their, their father. Um, and also their stepfather. So it, it was just a very interesting situation to be reading about. And also it was really interesting to read about the perspective of like the mother who whose husband left her and you know their origin story and how it felt to feel abandoned like that. So it was just, it just you saw the perspective of all the different family members and it was just very, very interesting to see what that was like. Yeah, that's that's a fault of mine. Like I don't, ever take time out for just like fiction, just some like I'm, if I'm doing an 
audiobook it's usually the story of amazon and you know it's it's just like it's always uh you know i used to do that too i i agree i used to actually only read um non-fiction because i felt like the, this is so annoying i used to feel like the roi reading fiction was very low on the unless it was a classic but i found when i was reading fiction it was significantly more de-stressing and i actually it forced me to think about different situations much more so than when I was reading nonfiction because I wasn't just reading as like an outside observer. I was putting myself much more in those situations and how I would react versus just being like, oh, that sucks for this person. And so I was like, oh, wow, like I feel how they feel. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I'm, not, I'm trying to go into fiction now. <laughs> yeah, got it. Okay, yeah. All right, Shenzi. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories you shared, what you're building with Merge, and uh, looking forward to see what happens with the company moving forward. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.